the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub podcast, the safe haven for ex-evangelicals, people questioning organized religion, and anyone interested in the history of Christianity. I'm your host, Michael Camp. Today, we have another remarkable guest with us, Martin Prozensky, an author, a professor, and a researcher. And today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Honest to Goodness, An Ethical and Spiritual Odyssey. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're, you've uh, joined me. Um, and Martin comes to us from South Africa today. And as we got acquainted, I realized uh, he lives in uh, areas of that country that I've actually been to. Uh, for our American listeners, what area of South Africa do you live, Martin? I live in the province of KwaZulu-Natal on the uh, southeastern side of South Africa. Um, the nearest big city is the Indian Ocean Harbor city of, of Durban. We're about six hours drive from Johannesburg. I see. Okay, that locates it. Yeah, I've been to both Johannesburg and Durban when... My wife and I lived in Malawi in the 90s. Uh, we had some great adventures there. Um, and we probably uh, drove close to your house. So you, I think you said you were near Pieter Meritzburg. Uh, yes. Yes. About 15 kilometers from Peter Meritzburg, the right. capital city of this province. Right. Great. So anyways, I like to give context to my interviews before we dive in. So. Let me offer our listeners a back cover summary of your book and share a little bit about why I had to interview you. Honest to Goodness proposes a new Christian presence that is free of dogmatism, exclusivism, and biblicism. It charts a way back to the spiritual and ethical revolution begun by Jesus of Nazareth, one that can make a vital difference to needless evils such as bigotry, environmental destruction, poverty, and violence. The book reveals the author's experience of living under, against, and after apartheid, insisting that a faith that does not confront this world's evils is no faith at all, but a dangerous betrayal of all that is good, beautiful, and true. So when I saw you know, that summary, it really caught my attention. Um, and I realized that you know, in my research, uh, I've I've come to the conclusion that when people pursue historical and spiritual truth with an openness, an openness to rethink things, use rational thought, and get some do some sound research, 
they inevitably come to the same or very similar conclusions. And your findings <clears throat> really align very nicely with my conclusions and writings, although I think you're saying it more eloquently and more deeply stated. And um, <clears throat> your, your conclusions also align with many other authors uh, who, are, who are rethinking Christianity and, <clears throat> and Christian history. But again, I think you have a fresh angle to it all, and we'll, we're going to discover what that is in a moment. So let's hear in your own words, why did you write this book, Martin, and what is its major theme? Thank you, Michael. I had several reasons for writing the book. Um, the first one is gratitude to the many Christians who gave me the priceless gift of a wonderful education at uh, universities in South Africa, at Oxford in England, and at Divinity School in the USA, and who gave me a passion for ethics as a central, if indeed not fundamental, part of what it means to be a, a Christian or a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that was one reason. Another one was um, to support goodness in any way I could. And as a scholar and writer, uh, writing a book about it was the obvious thing for me to do. So that was a second reason. A third one uh, was that I want to support the progressive Christianity movement. Uh, and a fourth one was that I wanted to show that beliefs must bow to ethics and not the other way around. Those were the, the, the main reasons for writing it, Michael. Yeah. As for the, the, the theme, uh, would you like me to carry straight on and comment on what its main theme is? Sure, go ahead. Okay, thank you. I wanted to uh, spread, say that spreading the greatest goodness here on earth for people and societies is what the historical Jesus was all about. Not as one of the authors I read in preparation for the book said, not about shipping souls to heaven when they die. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the major conclusions that uh, I came to. I mean, I was in the evangelical movement for 25 years here in the States and was actually a missionary to Africa trying to <laughs> ship souls to heaven, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the focus on ethics rather than the focus on religion and doctrines and, and, and getting all these beliefs and uh, religious codes of conduct down is, is really, uh, to me, is a really important point. Um, you, you have a definition of goodness. According to you know, your uh, evaluation of Jesus' spiritual and ethical revolution, as you call it, what is goodness? Centrally, it means as for Jesus, as I, as my researchers have revealed him to me, and now I'm talking about the Jesus who came before the writing of the Gospels or Paul's letters. Anyway, goodness for him is um, active, caring, compassion for suffering, caring about injustice, and caring about truth as world-changing, certainly people and society-changing powers, forces, right here on earth in this life here and now about the things that we experience that disfigure us that deny people fullness of life uh, that seemed to me to be what goodness was for him especially the emphasis that these are quite literally world-changing 
powers. In fact, I would say that following what I understand Jesus is saying, they are the only ones that can truly change the world from the kind of mess we're in now with global warming, uh, the massive gap between the rich and the poor and other evils that can be changed. Right. That's right. as I see it. I, I like that you, yeah, in, in one chapter, you distilled it down to three words, love, truth, and freedom. And you just described the love and the truth. Uh, what, what does the freedom part mean? Uh, one of the key freedoms that he was looking for for, for people uh, seemed to me to be freedom from the uh, hugely oppressive economic and socially exploitative power of dominant economic and political systems, in short, of Caesar, Caesar of his day, um, and his accomplices in his, Caesar's accomplices in his own uh, round, in his own homeland. And the key thing to understand about that uh, is that Caesar hasn't gone. Caesar has merely morphed yes. into a new <laughs> kind of do a new, uh, right. domination. Right. And people who, who are oppressed and exploited by it, and that in, in, in my country, in South Africa, is a, the majority of people, but it's a worldwide issue. Uh, that is what prevents fullness of life, fullness of freedom. I once heard the theologian Jorgen Moltmann, uh, who visited our campus about 30 years ago, defining uh, freedom as freedom means acceptance. Caesar doesn't accept. Caesar dominates. Caesar uh -huh. exploits. Right. That's right. I, I, I make the point uh, in, in one of my books that <clears throat> that's, you know, the empire is, is the mentality. And of course, we still have empire today. But, you know, we've made some progress here and there. But it's amazing that, you know, even still, we think uh, as us, our society is so modern, but and we've made so many progress in civil rights and so forth. But, you know, there's still so much to do. And in some parts of the world, just like in your part of the world, apartheid was, what, all the way through to the 90s or whenever. And, and it's just amazing that, you know, these things um, just take decades, centuries to address. Um, but, yeah, empire is, is still uh, influencing us. And, and we still have to fight that, that evil that, that comes with that kind of mentality. Uh, like you said, people... Uh, to, in the empire, you, you you don't really count. You're just you're just someone to control, right? Um, exactly. Yes, and and I'm I'm curious too. I mean, as I read your book, I didn't quite get an answer to this, but I'm wondering what your spiritual journey has been like. I know you uh, you've moved from uh, conservative Christianity to liberal to something today. How would you describe your journey, and what do you call yourself today? Thank you. Uh, I'll start with the second part of your question, Michael, and that is, uh, 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 for reasons that will be clear in a moment, I'm hesitant about uh, labeling myself uh, because there isn't, I haven't yet found a label that really works for me. But amongst those that don't work, the one that works best amongst them, if you can make sense of that odd way of putting it, uh, would be to say I, I would align myself with the progressive Christian movement, um, having left behind uh, my liberal phase and before that my conservative and evangelical and as a boy, certainly fundamentalist phrases. So uh, that's how much for la the, the labeling side. 
and the journey that took me from where I was at the beginning of all this as a, a young lad in South Africa to today, it involved stages. I was, I was lucky to have a very deeply Christian family, uh, biblically conservative, certainly, but politically very radical. And our, our Anglican or Episcopalian parish, as you would call it in the, in the United States, uh, was very much uh, ethically orientated. Our family, uh, my parents were ac actively anti-apartheid people. And those are the values, uh, values I was brought up with. Uh, but with a missionary background um, to our, our family, to the Prozeski family, uh, the outlook was certainly pretty evangelical. Um, and missionary talk and missionary ideals were uh, very strong in those early years. Uh, and it uh, resulted in my being a very uh, conservative, pretty well fundamentalist uh, person in the reading of the Bible. Two main things undermined and ended that for me. The first one was that the town where I uh, grew up, which was in another part of South Africa near a Cape Town, uh, used to be called the Little Jerusalem because it had an exceptionally big Jewish population. Uh, it's much smaller now, but then it was very, very big indeed. And my classmates at the, the boys' school I attended, uh, several of them were Jewish and have remained. In fact, I was on the telephone today to one of them. And I got to know in them and their families uh, Judaism and Jewishness, not as the Old Testament, but as a living ethical faith in its own right. And it began to trouble me very greatly, even as a, as a, as a youth, the idea that because they didn't embrace Christ as their savior, they were all going to be eternally lost. And that seemed to me to be profoundly unjust. And I asked my father that once and said, how can, how can that be? And he demonstrated to me, uh, Michael, for the first time, the way in which ethics should and must shape belief. This is what he said to me. He said, do you think you are more just than God? And I, and I was stunned by that. And I said, no, of course not. And then he said, well, then how can there be a problem? If God is perfectly just, he would never do anything unjust. And so the personal contact with uh, these wonderful Jewish people that I grew up with um, and my father's own response there uh, certainly began to make me move away from any kind of exclusive religiosity. And that continued when I started at university as a, a, a theology student preparing for the Anglican priesthood. Um, I turned out to be a teacher rather than a pastor. So uh, anyway, and encountered uh, critical biblical studies by deeply committed Christian professors and began to be able to see the Bible in an entirely new and, in my view, wonderfully exciting light as a result of that. And that was the end of any fundamentalism. And so the fundamentalist and evangelical phase of my life gave way to a liberal one until I began to uh, do something that South Africa didn't make easy in those days, and that is make active contact with uh, people in the Islamic faith, in the Hindu faith, uh, these were people almost entirely of Indian or Pakistani background, so apartheid separated us. Uh, 
I went by law, of course, to an all-white school. And um, But as that changed, and as I began at, to make active contact as apartheid began to crumble uh, with people of other faiths, Buddhists, Hindu, African traditionalists, and so on, uh, the idea that somehow three quarters of the world's population, or certainly two thirds, uh, didn't count for much as far as religion was concerned was just completely impossible. And liberalism didn't address that for me. And it didn't fully address the fact that I'd come to see the Bible in a way that most of my liberal friends in the church and elsewhere uh, didn't see it. So you can see why I resist the idea of a single label, uh, Michael, because uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, as I used to say to some of my students um, when they'd ask me, you know, what is your faith? I would say, well, if you really want to know, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm an African traditionalist, Buddhist, Confucian, <laughs> and so on, go through the alphabet, um, right. and very liberal, a radical Christian as well. Right. I, I, I have that same issue. It's like, what do you call yourself? I, I, I always say, I, I, I put progressive Christian, but then I, you know, I pay, well, for the lack of a better term, I really don't know. And I used to call myself, uh, even as an evangelical, a follower of Jesus. Uh, but I had very conservative theology while I was saying that. So it, it's really hard to pin down. And I think partly because people have preconceived ideas of what something is. And when you say a term, uh, something goes in their mind, oh, he must be like this, but then that may not fit what you are. So uh, it's really interesting. Um, uh, you mentioned apartheid a few times and how it's kind of shaped you. Um, you know, how is that in growing up in South Africa with all that, that system uh, all the way up into uh, what the 1990s, you know, how, how has that experience uh, shaped your, your um, approach to spirituality and ethics? I think you touched on that a moment ago. Can you go further into that? Yes, certainly. Um, growing up under apartheid, and I was four years old when the uh, nationalist government that created that word apartheid came into power. Uh, and of course, I was here in 1994 when finally it was removed legally and ethically from uh, the country with the first democratic elections after Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress were unbanned and able to operate. So it, it covered a huge chunk of my life and its influence was incalculably powerful. Uh, firstly, because of course, one was aware that we were living amidst what a, a truly great evil. Uh, my, my late father often used to say apartheid is a national sin, a national sin, a sin of the nation, uh, meaning by that, of course, the white governing part of the nation. Um, and that was certainly strongly echoed in the, uh, the Anglican Church and others in South Africa. Uh, so there was this evil all around you and the uncomfortable and painful sense that whether we liked it or not, we, because of the color of our skin, were beneficiaries of this monstrous injustice. Um, I once likened it to having an incurable disease, uh, which it is in a way a, a, a disease of the, in your mind, but not, not necessarily fatal, but certainly incurable in that you've inherited privileges that were denied others for absolutely no reason other than the color of their skin. 
-hmm. And that was also part of the gratitude element in my life that I, I had a debt that I wanted to give back. The other side of the apartheid experience was the shocking reality that apartheid was created and maintained and enforced often brutally by Christians. Mm -hmm. The white right. population of South Africa uh, was overwhelmingly Christian in orientation, broken into many denominations, of course, but nonetheless, uh, apartheid was defeated by people of many faiths and none. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that some kind of exclusive theology could be any more acceptable than some kind of exclusive racism mm -hmm. seemed to me to be an absolutely obvious conclusion. Justice is for every everybody. And the message that a minority of human beings gets saved uh, seemed to me to be an outright injustice. And oh, so absolutely. I began to break completely with any kind of Christianity that perpetuated that kind of doctrine. Right. So apartheid was hugely influential. Yes. I have to say, on the good side, Michael, if I may add one thing, uh, I early came to be a huge admirer of Des Desmond Tutu and other fearless Christian leaders, but was always aware that there were other highly scholarly people who were Christian people who were uh, apartheid creators and perpetuators. Mm -hmm. These are powerful forces to shape one. Right. Yeah, I, I, um, I was living in Malawi at in, uh, in 1994. So we kind of, you know, heard and saw some of that going on. It was amazing. Um, but uh, I think what, what I want to do now is I want to pivot our conversation and start talking about, um, you know, we've got conservative Christianity, and we've got liberal Christianity. And then you, we've got some, you know, something uh, else that we're trying to pen down and, 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 and not sure what to call it. But I want to really uh, um, go down the path first to, to see what is wrong with this, not only the, just the injustice that we see in, let's say, the doctrine of the afterlife, but other areas uh, with, with popular theology. And it's very popular in America. Uh, evangelicalism is, is, is extremely popular. Conservative Christianity is uh, although not a majority, a very significant minority, it's a, you know, one third of the population in our country. So the question is, and you address this very well in the book, why isn't conservative Christianity sufficiently ethical? Thank you. Uh, yes. There are several reasons here that are uh, spelled out in the book. Let me summarize the main ones here. Uh, start with doctrine. The idea of an exclusive revelation and an exclusive salvation as the work of a, a perfectly loving, perfectly good, perfectly just God is an outright contradiction. Um, truth is a sacred value. And truth is lost when a number of things go wrong, when there's a clash with fact and when there's a, an outright contradiction. There is an, an outright contradiction cannot be true, it cannot even make sense. Uh, simplistically to talk about a square circle is meaningless. It's not false, it's just meaningless. Uh, less obviously, but still self-contradictory self is the idea that a God of perfect justice does what conservative Christianity says 
he does, and that is consign a majority of humanity to a horrible afterlife, a truly horrible one, um, an unimaginably terrible one, according to some fundamentalists, because they don't embrace Christ as the only savior. And now they don't embrace Christ most often because they've never heard of him or experienced Christianity at the hands of imperialist invaders, people who conquered their countries and subjected them to the kind of domination that we've had here in South Africa. Uh, how can it possibly be a just and loving thing to do such a thing? And then to throw a lifeline out uh, that is accessible just to a minority of those who are lucky enough to be born within favorable access of the conservative Christian method, this seems to me to be in complete contradiction to what a loving and true and just and ethical God would do. Uh, that's at the belief level. Uh, there, are, there are other problems at a practical level. Uh, one of our Afrikaans poets in this country once said, uh, and he was a delightfully irreverent man, and I'll translate it to English. Uh, he said, there are people whose gaze is fixed so firmly on the heavens that they don't see what their hands are doing on earth. And in my experience of the conservative forms of Christianity that we have here in South Africa, fundamentalists and new movements and so on, is their entire message is all about another life and the importance of making sure you are saved, that you do get shipped to heaven with massive amounts of gender injustice, of homophobia, of virtually teaching hatred of uh, heterosexual, homosexual people, of gay and lesbian people, uh, and so on, let alone contemptible con attitudes, attitudes of contempt to people of other faiths as, at the very best, inferior, and at, at, at the worst, outrightly evil. I've heard people saying, conservative Christians saying that African traditional religion is evil, it's demonic. Um, I think those are profoundly unethical ways of living and they contradict the idea of a faith in a, a following of a Jesus of such inclusive love and concern as his as the parable of the good Samaritan so magnificently tells us mm -hmm. uh, so that in a nutshell would be the, the the main unethical aspects of the conservative Christianity I was once part of uh, Michael I know it from yeah. inside yeah, I do too. <laughs> I went to I went to the mission field when uh, when I first went arrived in Somalia in the 19, early 1980s. I had uh, this, the dilemma hit me like a ton of bricks. It was like, wait a minute, you know, I I love these people that I'm working with. The majority of Somalis are Muslims, and um, worked with them and got to know them and became friends. and And my theology was telling me, well, if they don't accept Christ, they're going to go to hell. So. I very quickly became uh, what I call uh, an inclusive, inclusivist, but I still believed in hell because the, the, um, uh, I was afraid to actually share what, I, what, what my change in my belief was. I mean, I, I believed that some people could be saved outside of Christendom, but I would never share that in the church. It was because it was just, it would rock the boat. It would, it would I, they probably wouldn't, support me as a missionary anymore and i didn't know you know any other people who had that view it was just like you 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 kept things a secret and you stayed in the movement because 
you know, you didn't know any better. So that's kind of, I understand exactly what you're talking about. One of the other things that really, that, that has blown my mind is, is how uh, we are taught in uh, popular theology and in evangelicalism, how to view the Bible. And I'm sure we've come to the same, some of the same conclusions about um, what is a, a more historical and rational way of viewing the Bible. But what is the conservative Christianity's mistaken view of the Bible? Thank you. Yes, uh, Michael. As I understand it, after more years of thinking and studying and reading the Bible, uh, under the influence of modern biblical, critical biblical scholarship, it's this, and that is a failure to acknowledge, a failure even to see, and certainly to acknowledge just how human the Bible is. The fact that it's human authors, and I use the word authors, not just writers, um, believed in and many who read the Bible under the influence of a conservative view, consider it God breathed or divinely inspired, doesn't change the fact that the human hands that produced it and the human minds that through which the words came from their brains onto paper, no matter what heritage they had, no matter what faith experiences they had, were subject to the fallibility, the limitations, the cultural and historical conditioning that all of us have. And, and so the idea that it is passed off as uh, God's message to us, and in that sense, in every way to be respected and accepted, and not only clashes with what any careful, critical, open-minded, truth-loving scholar will see about the Bible. I mean, how do you square the three synoptic gospels with the differences from John's gospel, just right. to mention one, uh, the two accounts of creation in, in Genesis and so on. Uh, there is, there's another aspect to this as well, and that is uh, refusal to accept its humanness leads to a blindness to the fact that there are things, and by the way, the, the Bible began to be a massively important factor in my life from very early in my life when my I was given my first Bible on my 10th birthday and uh, my father had written after Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 uh, that that was God's promise and it says they that be wise will shine as the brightness of the firmament but those who turn many to righteousness as the stars forever uh, the Bible has been important in my life and much more richly so when I began to accept its humanness because that allowed me to understand why there are some unholy elements in it. Uh, infanticide, genocide, homophobia, and they aren't confined to the Jewish scriptures, which traditional Christians call the Old Testament, but which for my Jewish friends is the Testament. Uh, but they're also present in the New Testament. I mean, there's some horrifically homophobic passages in Paul's letters, for example, quite apart from the exclusivist teaching about salvation and revelation that we've spoken about. So uh, that's pretty well sums up why I think that's a, an unethical way of using the Bible and a mistaken way of using the Bible. Yes. Right. That's enough for now on that one. So, um, yeah, the... The, the contradictions, um, recognizing that there's so many human elements in the Bible 
And one of the things that I've learned is how the, actually the Bible and is one of the um, few holy books that actually critiques itself. It's it you know reading the prophets that and, and yes. the critique of the sacrificial system, and the, and the injustice, and then Jesus coming in and saying, "You've heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you." And he talks starts talking about nonviolent restoration rather than retribution. So yes. I mean, and 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 people uh, uh, in evangelicalism are literally taught to ignore those kinds of critiques and and immediately are taught to try to harmonize them <laughs> and it's aggravating as anything when you really re come to the point when you realize you know what this the bible is not uh internally consistent and completely you know harmonized throughout this is a like you said some holy things and some unholy things and we got to come to terms with that and and when you when people can do that, it really does open up a whole new way of looking at it. And uh, the 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 holy things can come to the top, and the unholy things can can be identified, and we can really see kind of come up with an ethics in, in my mind. But when you Absolutely. don't have that, it's just um, well, what I call a two-faced God. You've got a, a a God that's it's contradictory and even schizophrenic. Well put, well put, Michael. Yes, right. So um, also um, salvation. We talked about damnation. So what about, you know, the doctrine of salvation and conservative Christianity? How is that? I mean, it's really, as you say, it's it's really contradictory and heartless. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it cannot be the work of a, a perfectly just and loving God to uh, certainly a perfectly just and loving God would want to help the world, would want to help people. There's no, no question about that. What loving person doesn't want to help people who are in a helpless predicament or even just a serious predicament when they can, uh, but to do so in a way that is frankly favors just one sliver of the cultures of the world. Uh, that's just completely impossible for me to accept that exactly. that for the knowledge of the love of God, um, of a perfectly loving and good and ethical God. So it's a doctrine that in that form has to go there. That is not what salvation is about. And above all, it has the effect of ignoring the fact that this, this planet Earth of ours right now, as you and I are speaking, and as I hope people will listen to this interview later on, is in very, very serious trouble and needs all the help it can get. Um, and gazing up heavenward and not being worried about this world really, really strikes me as a profoundly unethical way of claiming to be a follower of Jesus. And and there were, uh, to be fair, there were <clears throat> many evangelicals that did pursue, uh, you know, making the world better and helping the poor and so forth. Um, <clears throat> uh, but, you know, when you have a theology that is so contradictory uh, even then, uh, you end up overlooking so many things because of, of this, you know, uh, obsession with the end times and the afterlife and making sure people are saved, etc. So it's a fascinating uh, it's to, to look at the whole picture. Um, you, you said this thing in the in your uh, one of the chapters that conservative Christians can be actually deeply ethical and still hold unethical beliefs how can you how can you be ethical and still hold unethical beliefs 
this is how I experience it um, uh, virtually through my life, Michael, because most of the Christians um, from this uh, family background I came from uh, were conservative, uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists and so on, and that was present in our own home. Now, these were very good people. They were kind. They were mm -hmm. generous. Uh, they, uh, some of them certainly contributed towards my education because uh, we weren't a wealthy family. Uh, I experienced goodness in these people, but also it was, it was a goodness that was accompanied by a religious outlook or mentality, perhaps, that was extraordinarily confined and narrow. Uh, encouraged by the narrowness of what they were hearing from pastors and priests and other lead religious leaders, and simply never addressed those wider issues of what about the problems, the moral problems in the Bible? What about um, people of other faiths who are manifestly such great people? And how can the Dalai Lama be considered to be somebody who is heading straight for hell when he dies? And one of the morally great people of our time uh, simply never addressed those questions. So I could see that, and I could see it in members of my own family and in some of the uh, ministers and priests that I knew and grew up with and encountered along the line. The same kindness and goodness of, of, of life, but a blindness to doctrines and beliefs that were clearly, to me, clearly ethically problematical. Unawareness, right. for example, that the Nicene Creed never talks about ethics. Yeah. It never says anything about the most fundamental thing I, is, yes. to, is to be the loving, kind, truthful person that God wants you to be. That's right. Yeah, it's it's crazy. The statements of faith and the, the creeds and yeah, Christianity and that and in, in, in history just got went down this path of, oh, you've got to uh, believe exactly the right way. Um, um, it's just amazing when you look at all the wars over you know, how to describe the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And <laughs> yes, it's, you know, uh, is mother is Mary, the mother of God, or is the Mary, the yeah. mother of, of Christ. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me when I, when you study it. Um, so yes, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I know so many evangelical and fundamentalist Christians are very kind, nice people. And, they, uh, but they have this inconsistent way of looking at the world in my mind. And, and when that happens, they end up going, you know, um, only following their doctrines and their belief and how they view the Bible, etc. And then when they go into that territory, they start doing, a, a, doing and saying unethical things uh, without, without realizing, you know, so I think there's, there's kind of a faith fraud going on. And, and, uh, some some the people who are leaders should really know better and the followers are just kind of saying well this is the way i was taught and this is the way and then they're not really taught to ask the tough questions so they don't ask the tough questions and only a Absolutely. few who are yeah. willing to do that go down that path so yes, um exactly and one of the true. yeah so what's also fascinating to me is uh, i agree with you that you know uh most People, most Christians, even even um, in popular and embracing popular theology, have misunderstood Jesus and and what he said and what his his theme was. How would you describe that? How have people misunderstood Jesus? 
I, I would say by, uh, and this is what my, I found my research into this question so exciting, Michael, and that is uh, an inability to, to read the Gospels, the four Gospels, uh, and Paul's letters for that matter, but mainly the Gospels, uh, with a sort of transparency of vision, read through them to what came before them. Mm -hmm. And I, I am somebody who believes that the historical Jesus uh, is accessible to us, uh, not the way a biography would make possible, certainly not the way an autobiography would make possible, um, but in enough detail for us to discern the kind of passionate concern to combat and to open people's eyes to this worldly evil in the form of economic and political exploitation, hunger, uh, exclusion, uh, dismissal by others, uh, the inclusivity of the associations we can discern Jesus having with tax collectors and sinners and so on, indicate uh, an embracing of the humanness for all its flaws uh, that is obscured if you are really concerned only about a more spiritual Jesus. So uh, stopping with the gospel text, however carefully read, in my view, can prevent one from seeing through it to what must have been there before and what was there before in the kind of revolutionary who brings, if I may put it quite bluntly, who brings God down to earth, mm -hmm. who incarnates him. And I, and I think the, the doctrine of the incarnation is a profoundly valuable one of saying uh, divine reality uh, deity, whatever we want to call the ultimate goodness, is not in some distant, uh, ordinarily inaccessible heaven, but a power and a presence that can shape our existence right now. And Jesus seems to me to have been saying that. Uh, and that can be obscured. And the, the more one reads the Gospels with Paul prim primarily in mind, because understandably, Paul had no access to, no experience of that uh, flesh and blood Jesus. His was a, a transcendental experience, a visionary experience of a heavenly kind. And people often read the Gospels uh, with that as their frame of reference. Mm -hmm. And so I think the loss of a sense of that profoundly powerful ethical Jesus in an this-worldly sense is what gets lost. Yes. Yeah, I... I'm uh, I'm in the process of writing another book, and I, I'm trying to bring that out. Where um, you know the the, the Jewish uh, uh, traditions, which there was no real, there was no one Judaism. There were so many different types of Judaism back right. in that time. But one of the the major uh, themes of Judaism, even amongst the different groups was um, violent retribution and, and um, you know, yes. the, the, you know, reading the book of Joshua and numbers and, and then coming and saying, well, how do we, you know, how do we uh, address the, 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 the Roman empire oppressing us and our enemies? And so there was definitely this, this hatred and justification for violence towards one's in, enemies. And uh, uh, that, that whole um, picture is lost if you just read the New Testament uh, like through this lens of 
of you know getting saved for the afterlife and so forth and they they just and 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 for paul i i really see him as being converted from a violent judaism to a peacemaking judaism as one of the major elements of his, his of his conversion but a lot of times people don't see that because they get all caught up with the theology etc but um uh, uh let's pivot a little bit and look at uh liberal Christianity. You, you also critique that. What is your major critique of liberal Christianity? Uh, to, to put it as, as concisely as possible, uh, Michael, I would say uh, uh, liberal Christians would be people, in my definition of it, hold to a universalist view of salvation. Everybody gets saved. Mm-hmm. And so they reject the exclusivism and the, the minority salvationism of the conservatives. Mm-hmm. But the Everybody still gets saved only because of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been profoundly influenced by contact with Buddhism. Now, you, you, can't, you can't be closely associated with uh, Buddhism, uh, read and study the Dalai Lama, and accept some sort of dismissal of people like him or of what was powerful and noble about Prophet Muhammad. And in South Africa, we had uh, 14 or 20 odd years of the life of the young Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. In fact, it appeared that he became the Mahatma, as you would know. And so it's not possible for me to accept that kind of inclusivism. Best example of it and the most problematical was the uh, liberal Catholic and very influential Catholic theologian of a generation ago, Karl Rana, with his idea of uh, that the Dalai Lama, for example, or Gandhi were anonymous Christians. They were, because of the virtue and spiritual depth of their life, uh, really Christians, but they didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that to me is just painfully a patronizing and dismissal of uh, people of that kind of quality of faith on their own terms. So liberalism increasingly seemed to me to be a halfway liberation out of conservative Christianity. It didn't go far enough. And I decided one day I've just got tired of never hearing a single word about the, that issue of people of other faiths and, for that matter, of none. And so, similarly about the Bible, um, liberals are critical biblical about the Bible, but I never ever heard a liberal actually fully acknowledging until I came across um, John Shelby Spong's work. Uh, Mm-hmm. in the USA, um, and I think he's hardly a liberal, much more a radical, um, accepting the unholy elements of the Bible. Oh, yes, modern. right, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that part. The, the, uh, a lot of liberals try to still hold on to the, to the whole Bible. Um, and, um, but there's, uh, yeah, there, there is a new, there is a, a progressive movement that is recognizing um, that the, uh, the the problems problematic nature of the Bible and it, and realizing that you know what actually even in Jesus's time and even Jesus and the first disciples they didn't look at the Bible the way most popular theology does you know they you know they the, the Sadducees only looked at the Torah apparently uh, they didn't pay attention to the rest of it uh, the um, the Essenes had their own scriptures that they looked, you know, that they thought were authoritative, and other Jews didn't uh, ignore that. The Greek Jews had the Apocrypha, which had 14 books, 
that yes. never that only the Eastern Christians and the Catholics have in their Bible, but that the earliest Christians thought those were a, a, the part of the scriptures. So uh, it, the, it, people just don't realize that the Bible was kind of a debate rather than just in a, a you know a, the can the concept of a canon of a definitive list of scriptures was foreign to them. And that didn't come until centuries later. So it's very interesting. On the on the other part, um, you know, Jesus is, um, you know, is he, uh, uh, you know, so special that everyone has to be saved through him? That's a very interesting question. Uh, and I think I know exactly what you mean, that, that sometimes uh, there is still some kind of a, oh, well, it's, you know, these people are secret Christians and they don't know it. But maybe another way of looking at it is God, if his God is a God of love, then he, he's, he's, his loving nature can be found in any type of philosophy or religion if people are really, you know, searching for truth. And you can find it in, you know, some elements of Islam and some elements of, of Hinduism. Like you said, uh, Gandhi was a Hindu, uh, but who also saw or read about Jesus' nonviolent uh, nature uh, as he as he encountered the scriptures as well. But but um, he certainly rejected the doctrines of of uh, much of the church. So it's a it's a fascinating topic. Um, the uh, uh, you know how to how to categorize people and um, how to describe. Uh, people from other faiths and, and, and how God would look upon those other, that those other faiths. Um, to me, Jesus was so inclusive that to look down on other faiths would be against what Jesus taught, as long as he, he cared about how people uh, treated each other and not, not, not so much what they believed, but how they treated each other, how, how they Absolutely. lived their lives. And that's, that's what counts. Um, uh, so I really like, oh, did you, did you have something else? I was going to say a, a, a tremendous help to me was a, a sentence in one of the books of uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who was then a professor of world religions at Harvard. And that was, he said, he wrote, it's a mistake to think that God, a God who is perfect goodness, is exclusively or even mainly interested in religion. He's interested in goodness. Yes, exactly right. That's well put. It's yeah, we get so hung up on the religion part, and it's 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 the goodness. That's what one of the thing reasons I liked your book so much because you brought that out so strongly. It's really goodness that that God cares. I call that what matters most, and uh, you've really hit exactly. that. You've got this chapter called the Jesus Movement Today and the Global Goodness Project. What does that mean? Well, the Jesus Movement Today. Um, is everybody and everything um, that wants to continue the work of this worldly transformation in the interests of greater goodness, greater lovingness, greater truthfulness against all the different forms of the morphed Caesar of our time, um, recognizing that they do so in partnership with exactly the same commitments in people of other faiths. Um, and of none. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But because of a, a, a third of humanity associates itself one way or another with Christianity and traces its its origins back to Jesus, 
Uh, I called it in the book the Jesus Movement because the book deals with my interpretation of uh, what's been wrong and what is right and what can be better about Christianity. Uh, but actually, it is uh, the Global Goodness Movement uh, project that I uh, want to uh, comment on in response to your question, Michael, and mm -hmm. that is uh, I launched a course when I was at the university on the ethics of power, when I was still teaching at the university some about this was about 15, 20 years ago now. And in my research into it, I studied John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The Anatomy of Power. And he came up with a, a, something that lies behind the idea of a, a global goodness project. He said, the most powerful, the most influential form of power in the world today is the organization. Without organizational power, uh, nothing much is gonna get done. And it struck me that uh, trade has the World Trade Organization. In Western countries, accidents and injuries have the Red, Red Cross as organized structures. Uh, knowledge has universities and research institutes and so on. But goodness as such has no specific institutional backing for it to encourage it and help it along and be a resource. Um, Goodness or ethics is not the prime business of the churches. Worship is their prime business, no matter how much they may claim otherwise. But worship is what mm -hmm. really counts. Right. Belief yeah. in worship. Yeah. So I thought well, maybe what the world round now needs is a some form of institutional, organizational resourcing globally with people of all faiths and none to contribute organizational clout it's a bad metaphor, it's a violent one, organizational energy, organizational passion, uh, mm -hmm. organizational resources uh, into the wonderful goodness that is in so many people, isolated from one another, doing their best as individuals or as small clusters or small structures, but nothing global. That's what that's about in the book. That's fair. That's fascinating. Um, you know, I, 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 I see that happening in a way, but it's not <laughs> organized, if you will. It's it's people uh, who have, you know, human beings latch on to this concept that goodness is really the, the most ethical path and, and, and religion is not, you know, uh, as important, uh, as fascinating as it is. But, and so, you know, the, the, the poverty alleviating movements and, and international aid organizations, uh, uh, I'm involved with an organization called Rotary International. We, our motto is service over self. We do uh, projects uh, all over the world uh, and, and partner with NGOs and aid organizations and development organizations to do uh, work that makes the world a better place and, and really does spread goodness. Um, so uh, it's happening, but I agree, it, it really does need uh, some more organizations. So um, uh, um, I want to learn more about that. Uh, the Global Goodness Project. It sounds like a great idea. Um, so we're running out of time, uh, Martin. Uh, this has been a great conversation. And um, I want to draw attention for our listeners um, that you, uh, the, your book, um, Honest to Goodness, is available on Amazon. And uh, it's a great it's a great resource and a great read. And also you have a novel that sounded fascinating to me called Warring Souls. What happens when faith is guided by ethics and what happens when it's not? Uh, 
So that's a very interesting title. And um, uh, that would be available on Amazon as well, I assume. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. So folks, uh, if you want to learn more about Martin's books and writings, uh, um, uh, look on uh, Amazon. Uh, the spelling of his name will be on the description of this podcast, and you can find those books. Uh, Martin, this has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, I wish we could continue it on. Maybe one day I'll go back, return to South Africa, and if you ever come back to the States, definitely look me up. So um, I want to wish you well, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. My thanks to you, Michael, for a great experience. I hugely appreciate it and I greatly admire what you're doing. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, we'll sign off for the Spiritual Brew Pub. Uh, folks, uh, listen for the next uh, podcast. We have Bart Campolo coming up in our next podcast in a few weeks. So we'll sign off for now. Enjoy responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.